0: Seeing the runaway success of Disneyland after it opened in 1955, there were regional entrepreneurs and visionaries around the country who started thinking they could give it a shot themselves. After a few false starts, an industrialist, a smooth-talking salesman, and a film art director finally got it done. Welcome to America's Disneyland's, showcasing the history of regional theme parks. I'm Barry Hill, and this is Episode 5. Six Flags. Six flags Texas Just see them You can see the Six Flags Waving ever family. The young mayor had only been in office for four years, but clearly the town was headed in a new direction. First elected at the age of 25, the broadcast journalist had just successfully bagged a new General Motors assembly plant, gotten approval to build a lake to serve as a regional water supply, and was working on plans for a turnpike, a hospital, and other major industrial development. Sandwiched between Dallas and Fort Worth, Arlington at the time featured a population of around 8,000, and Tommy J. Vandergrift wasn't finished. He was transforming the town from a largely agrarian region into a transportation-centered suburb, focused on new industry. And then he took a trip to visit some new place called Disneyland. Angus Wynn, president of the Great Southwest Corporation and quite the dominant force in the region was buying extensive tracts of land around Arlington with the intent to develop one of the nation's largest industrial centers, featuring a railway, warehouses, and a new freeway. He, too, visited Disneyland shortly after it opened and came away impressed. This was the ticket, both of these gentlemen knew, to not only spur growth, but to generate maximum publicity for the region. A park would also provide a much quicker turnaround in recouping the cost of Wynn's massive development plans, which had kind of stalled out for the moment. Few people in the country had ever experienced anything like Disneyland, and most could not make the cross-country trip. How fabulous it would be, both men agreed, to convince Walt to build a similar park here in Texas. It wasn't for lack of trying. Vandergriff appealed directly to Walt, along with scores of other civic leaders across the country. Everybody wanted one, and, of course, no one would get it. Wynn pushed ahead, determined to build a similar amusement enterprise, which initially included a major sports and recreation complex, along with a theme park. The two men, one a mayor, the other a business developer, realized they needed help from folks who actually knew how to design and build a park. But at this point in time there are only two individuals who fit this description, Walt Disney and C.V. Wood. Walt was out, but Woody, the fellow Texan building parks around the country with his new company, Marco Engineering, was eager to jump in. One of Woody's well-known hires from the movie industry had been adapting to designing for spatial environments for a few years now. The former art director for Singing in the Rain had become Marco's principal designer, working closely with Woody and participating in high-level meetings with Wen and other park officials between Arlington and Marco's offices in Los Angeles. Whether or not he had any notions of going solo in the business was made irrelevant when one day the news came down. Marco Engineering and Woody were out. Wen was asking Randall to continue work on the park under his own name, and thus was founded one of the most influential and successful park design firms outside of Disney. When Six Flags Over Texas opened in 1961, it was but the first in a long series of successful projects over the next 42 years, from 1959 until 2001. R. duel and Associates would ultimately design and actually build over 40 parks in the United States and abroad. No other company has come close. They led the way throughout the golden age of regional parks in the 1960s and 70s, ultimately touching the lives of millions of visitors over the decades. Originally conceived as Great Southwest Land, during the planning stage, the park was briefly thought of as Texas Under Six Flags, referring to the six nations that have ruled the territory of various periods in history. Well, you can't call it that. Texas is never under anything. And so with that indisputable bit of logic, the name was cleverly reimagined into Six Flags over Texas, which apparently made all the difference. Few states possess a history and culture as rich as Texas, and so the Bannock ideas for lands and attractions in the park weren't exactly hard to come by. Six Flags was a heavily themed park, divided into six lands representing the ruling countries. Spain... France, Mexico, the Republic of Texas, the Confederate States of America, and the United States of America. Each section was essentially a self-contained mini-park, complete with a mixture of attractions, shows, food, merchandise, and restrooms. This concept became the model for future parks as designers worked to ensure that all the visitors' needs and interests were taken care of. Not surprisingly, C.V. Wood and Marco Engineering's experience building Walt's Park is clearly evident, as Disneyland influences can be seen in many of the attractions and other elements. The single front gate was the only way in and out, a concept Walt got from Bill Pereira, one of the architects he consulted early in his park dreaming. In fact, Six Flags Over Texas was the first to implement a single admission charge that covered nearly everything in the park. Disneyland was still using their A through E ticket books, charging a nominal fee to get in, then letting the visitor choose which rides to spend their tickets on. A fence around the park served a dual purpose, preventing people from sneaking into the park, but also as a berm to block out the real world. The park's overall shape was an inverse of the Disneyland triangle, with a larger base at the front instead. The park was encircled by a narrow-gauge railroad, though with only a single station, it didn't serve as transportation to the far reaches. For that matter, neither did Disneyland's at first. Visitors would embark at either the Main Street or Frontierland stations, then complete an entire loop around the park to return where they started. For the footweary, both parks had overhead sky rides. At Six Flags, it provided a scenic hop from the United States all the way across to the western frontier of Texas. Rather than a Disneyland-style hub and spoke layout, or the completely random pathways found in most amusement parks, the primary guest path followed a meandering circle. It's nearly impossible to get lost, and you're guaranteed to see most everything. That was intentional, as park officials didn't want to waste anything they spent money on. But the meandering serves more than this, such as hiding what's around the next corner. This cinematic concept of the reveal is far more adventurous and exciting than just laying everything out where you can see it. In order to transition from one land or themed area to the next along the loop, designers can alter the environment in various ways. Landscaping changes from the desolate pines and scrubs of the wild frontier to manicured flowerbeds of modern America. Signage, lighting, and architecture take on the styles, colors, and materials of that place. Even the sounds around you such as background music and environmental noises, you know, animals, townspeople, transportation, they all contribute to the feeling that you've traveled to a different land and time. This approach to a circular pathway around the park would come to be known as the Dual Loop, from Randall Dual's company who conceived and refined it over time. It would be the standard approach for a great many parks they designed for years to come. A visitor to Six Flags would enter over the railroad into the Star Plaza, which featured a large floral Lone Star of Texas, synchronized water fountains, and the Six Flags flying over everything. If you decided to head toward the right, you'd next enter the United States period, representing Texas after it became the 28th state in 1845. Instead of the old Western frontier history, this section focused on modern times with a rocket-themed scrambler Humble's Happy Motoring Freeway, which was named after the Humble Oil Company, and Sidewinder, a Herschel-designed wild mouse roller coaster, which would later be moved to the Mexican section for the park's second season. For over 20 years, the Animal Kingdom Petting Zoo featured your standard fare of goats, cows, and donkeys, but also more interesting monkeys, seals, and baby elephants. Moving along, we would find ourselves back in the late 1800s, France's stake in Texas territory consisted of a single tiny colony, Fort St. Louis, established as a base of operations for further exploration. Lasting all but four years, this small foothold was apparently enough to qualify as one of the six flags. Park designers worked to instill the concept of theme as much as possible, so this section featured a very rustic log construction fort and a gift shop designed to mimic the original Fort St. Louis style. Merchandise focused on relevant items such as rocks and jewelry. You could play in the fort, shop in the shop, but like the historical colony before it, the heart of this land was quite small. But the major attraction was LaSalle's River Adventure, the latest descendant of Disneyland's Jungle Cruise. The historically based story focused on the colony's leader, LaSalle, and his quest to find the Mississippi River. Your boat captain wove a tale of Texas history while watching ahead for signs of trouble. And trouble was everywhere, in the form of an attacking Spanish fort, alligators, falling trees from beavers, and Native Americans unhappy about their homeland being overrun. As at Disneyland, physical animation brought the attraction to life, meaning crude animatronic figures, cannon shots that splashed around the boat, cave doors that opened and closed around you, and a falling tree that nearly smashes the boat as it passes. This was authentic theming at its finest for regional parks. You know, most people have never been to Anaheim, so this was a completely new experience. Stepping a bit further back in time, we found ourselves in the early 1860s when Texas had joined the Confederacy. Styled to a southern town during the war, it featured a Confederate recruitment station comprised of tents and cannon. Reenactments were performed by actors in authentic uniforms, and kids could sign up for service as soldiers or nurses. Theme shops sold flags, history books, maps, and other typical souvenir items. The obligatory fried chicken dinner could be had in a southern plantation home. Obliquely related to the Confederacy was the stagecoach ride. Its backstory recreated the original Butterfield Overland Stagecoach Company that ferried mail and passengers between Texas and California. This was the predecessor to Wells Fargo. Knott's Berry Farm used the same name for their version of the ride. A more dubious placement in the Confederacy was Skull Island, where the famous French pirate Jean Lafitte would presumably hide his ill-gotten gain. This was essentially Disneyland's Tom Sawyer Island, featuring a playground for kids accessible by River Raft. It was lushly landscaped, and the river journey surrounding it was quite scenic. Theming broke down somewhat, with a fiberglass slide running awkwardly out of the imposing Skull Rock's left ear. But the island was fun for kids, with room to run and play, suspension bridges to bounce on, and even a pier for fishing. On the other side of authentic plantation columns was the Republic of Texas, formed after independence was achieved from Mexico. Due to the popularity of Western movies and culture, it seems nearly every park in the 1950s and 60s featured a Wild West frontier section, but it was especially appropriate to include a Western-themed Texas in this park. The largest of the lands, you could walk through a Western town complete with jail, bank, an actual historic bank moved from the town of Tom Bean, a general store, and so on. Gunfights broke out all the time, of course, and the town saloon featured live shows and authentic period furnishings. One of the few breaks from the land's backstory and theme was the inclusion of Judge Roy Bean, a famous justice of the peace in that area of Texas, but in the 1880s, long after Texas had juggled its membership between a couple of flags. Across the creek, the Six Flags Railroad departed for a relaxing trip around the park, while the not-quite-so-authentic Astrolift ride station tried its best to fit into its surroundings. Somewhat sandwiched between Texas, Spain, and Mexico was the Indian Village. Not being credited with a flag of its own, this almost-a-land consisted of a large trading post souvenir store stocked with authentic relics and a small TP area for live performances of Native American dances. Although historically first, spain was next in the park's layout the difference in architecture was immediately apparent with structures built from stone instead of wood the idea being to recreate the ruins of spain's first mission built in texas in 1690. hop aboard a mule if you were small enough as the pack followed a conquistador through what was originally intended to be a majestic canyon that major thematic feature never quite made it to construction so didn't quite have the same historical significance and scenic enjoyment. Last stop on the tour was Mexico, located directly to the left of the entrance plaza. Mexico, which included the region that would ultimately become known as Texas, was formed after breaking away from Spanish rule. The year is 1821, and this section of the park featured bright colors everywhere, as is typical of Mexican culture. The bazaar sold authentic Mexican items that you'd find in-country, instead of typical park merchandise, and a Mexican restaurant offered appropriate cuisine. One of the more interesting attractions was the Fiesta Train, distinctive with oversized sombreros that topped each car. The winding, narrow-gauge track passed by beautiful gardens and colorful, comical animatronic figures such as mariachi bands, dancing tamales, and a bullfighter scene. The Fiesta train hardly represented authentic historical vistas, but instead captured the flavor of a festive, joyful society. To feet up in the sky. Similarities to Disneyland abound, from overall park layout, attractions and themes, to how they actually pulled it off. Attractions are near duplicates of those found at Marco's earlier three parks, many of which, of course, were first pioneered in Anaheim. The commonality is not merely design influence, but practical. It's much cheaper and more efficient to copy existing successful ideas and buy off-the-shelf rides and components from third-party companies, dressing them up as need be to fit local themes. One of these outfits was a fledgling two-man operation from Mountain View, California, who started out in the machining and metalwork business, then transitioned into building small rides, such as miniature freeways and boats for amusement parks. Walt's team discovered them, commissioning development and manufacture of the ride vehicles for Mr. Toe's Wild Ride, Alice in Wonderland, Dumbo Flying Spinner, and later the water flume systems for Pirates and Small World. Their invention of the tubular steel track for Disneyland's Matterhorn in 1959 upended the coaster world, And each of these early theme parks would add a family-friendly runaway mine train based on this approach. Arrow would go on to dominate the roller coaster industry for many years. But in 1961, they were just gaining a foothold in the business. Corporate sponsors, crucial for getting Disneyland to the starting line, also played a major role for Six Flags over Texas. Companies such as Westinghouse and Eastman Kodak signed up, paying a fee to showcase their products and services. In those days, these were fairly significant displays, much grander than merely having your logo on a picture spot plaque. Most of the shops in Walt's Park were originally operated by outsiders, including the film concession awarded to his friend Ark Linkletter in exchange for hosting Disneyland's opening TV special. This approach meant you had experienced industry professionals who would come in and just do their thing, freeing the park from having to figure it all out. It takes time to learn the restaurant or retail business, train employees, and finesse operational patterns, but over time, parks realized the profit they were losing and gradually took over all merchandise and food operations. Though some aspects were more authentic than others, Six Flags designers should be credited with establishing solid themes that were relevant to this particular park in this particular location. Texans are rightfully a proud lot, and this park was theirs, It represented their state's rich, diverse heritage. The flags flew proud over the entrance plaza. Merchandise in the shops wasn't generic touristy dribble. You could take a piece of Texas history home with you. Kids probably learned more about their state's history here than they had in school. C.V. may not have made it to the finish line, but at least there's one park he had a hand in that has survived to this day. The success of Six Flags Over Texas inspired Angus Wynn to explore opportunities for a second park. In 1964, he had negotiated a sale of 49% of the Great Southwest Corporation to the Pennsylvania Railroad, maintaining his role as president and CEO and accessing a bigger checkbook for expansion. Similar to his original Texas concept, the announcement boldly predicted a $400 million industrial and recreational development plan. A 3,000-acre site just west of Atlanta was secured in 1965 for $3 million, and two years later, the company became the first chain park operator in the United States. Opening June 16, 1967, for a total cost of twelve million million, Six Six Flags Over Georgia followed the same principles as its predecessor, tuned to its specific region. An early conundrum involved the fact that Georgia has actually never been ruled by six different countries, and so the original title was Georgia Flags. Reason won out, and the growing brand of six flags was used after all. The sixth flag filled in by using Georgia's own state flag. The five countries announced for representation included the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Spain, and the Confederate States of America. Well, this then set off a second controversy among local historians who were puzzled at the inclusion of France. Apparently, the only claim the French could make was from sailing along the rather modest coastline in the 17th century for a few weeks, charting and temporarily slapping names on places. Oh well, the show goes on. As with the Texas park, the opening day admission price of $3.95 provided access to all the rides and attractions. Our duel and associates were back to help develop the Georgia property. Joining them was art director Hans Peters, another veteran from the film industry, with credits such as the Red Badge of Courage. Similarities were everywhere, such as the dual-loop pathway layout, local interest theming, and many of the attractions. It was a somewhat ragged loop, though, in order to provide interest, suspense, and allow for wandering through the various architecture and scenery. The ornate entrance plaza, more extensive than in Texas, was clearly designed to evoke images of a southern plantation. Brilliant white classical statuary, planters, and fountains were arranged in a symmetrical box layout typical of well-manicured plantation gardens. Towering over everything from the back of the plaza, Grand Corinthian-style columns, presumably inspired by the ruins of Windsor Plantation House in Mississippi, beckoned the visitor toward the park proper. Such an elaborate welcoming area immediately established the unique theme and regional play setting for the entire park. This was no mere copy of its older Texan sibling. You were now in the heart of Dixie. As you wound around toward the right, though, each section featured similar attractions and concepts found in Texas. The British area featured the obligatory miniature antique car ride with colonial British-themed shops. A replica of the Liberty Pole, installed in Savannah during the Revolutionary War, connected the United Kingdom with Georgia history. The early to mid-1860s was next with the Confederacy, again with a southern fried chicken restaurant and one of the park's two train stations. Martha's Field Depot comes from one of the original town names for Atlanta, and the two locomotives, the Texas and the General, were named after the famous great locomotive chase in the Civil War. As at Disneyland and Six Flags Over Texas, the train looped the park providing a relaxing journey back in time, but in Georgia, it also served as transportation between two stations. A gorgeous music hall, the Crystal Pistol, was reminiscent of the 1855 Athenaeum Theater on Decatur Street near the old railroad square in Atlanta. It featured architecture straight out of the Old South with its tall, circular column portico. Tubular steel roller coasters were ushering in a new era of thrill rides, and Arrow Development, manufacturer of many of the park's original rides, wowed visitors with the Dahlonega Mine Train. Close by was the Yahula Hooler, a kid-friendly mine train coaster named after the Yahula Creek in Dahlonega. Simple attempts at attraction theming throughout the park included static and animated figures that represented each scene, such as loggers, soldiers, Native Americans, and so on. The mine train featured moonshiners and gold prospectors. Dahlonega is a small Georgian town that enjoyed a very brief gold rush in 1828, long before the war. Mm, close enough. The park's major dark ride was Tales of Finoki. The experience for opening day was rather underwhelming, shall we say, and so it was reimagined for the park's second season by Sid and Marty Croft, who were well known at the time for their children's television programming. This was a classic Disney-style boat ride through a show building, filled with animated scenes from the Uncle Remus stories adapted by an Atlanta journalist, Joel Chandler Harris. Directly across the main pathway from Okefenokee, Spain was represented almost exclusively by a single structure designed like a fort that housed shops and a Mexican restaurant. Spanish conquistadors stood watch at Castillo de Soto, the actual name of a castle in Spain, the structure of which appears to have been modeled after the Castillo de San Marcos in Florida. Just beyond Spain, typical rustic New France architecture signaled the era of frontier exploration by France between the 16th and 18th centuries. That is, except for the Dolphin Show, situated next to the Watermelon-Waterloo-Watermelon-Seed-Spitting Area. Ah, history. The main attraction for France, though, was a near copy of Six Flags Over Texas' River Adventure, which in itself was a near copy of Disneyland's Jungle Cruise. But instead of the explorer LaSalle, it's the legend of French explorer Jean Ribault we're interested in. The adventures were nearly identical to those found in Texas, with gunfights, threats from Native Americans, cannon fire from an opposing fort, and even the same gag where the tree nearly falls onto the boat as it passes. The skipper, costumed in a rather questionable, brightly festive striped shirt and hat, drove the boat while spieling corny jokes and incessantly warning of danger and disaster ahead. After leaving France, there was a bit of the American frontier with Old West structures providing an appropriate setting for the Raven Gap Railroad Station, an actual town located in the extreme northeastern tip of Georgia. This transitioned into a more modern United States section that would never have been mistaken for an immersive-themed environment. For the most part, it was a small collection of off-the-shelf amusement rides with current American touches, such as a modern miniature car ride sponsored by a Texas oil company, complete with scaled-down billboards. A puppet theater featured shows by the famous Croft Brothers, the same team who had redesigned the dark ride for the park's second season. As in Texas, there was a petting zoo that must have been quite the thing those days. Soon to come, other thoroughly American things to do included the Chevy show, a point-of-view widescreen theater which took you on a roller coaster ride and a wild car journey, and an indication of where these parks were headed over time, a towering, Y-shaped, skyhook ride that hauled a couple baskets of visitors way up and back down again. The ride wars had started. And lastly, in the minuscule land of Georgia, the log jamboree opened with one flume, with a second to be added the following year. Maybe it goes without saying, but the thematic idea of using a fiberglass log flowing down a waterway comes from the logging industry, where they'd float their cut trees down rivers. Occasionally, an ambitious lumberman would hop on for quite the thrill ride. For the Georgia attraction, Oversize, animated logging figures encountered along the journey were more spectacle, and pretty freaky, than they were immersive characters, but they provided interest and motion along the ride. Like in Texas, Six Flags Over Georgia was an immediate success that has continued to this day. Duell's group took a formula that worked quite well in the first park, and continued improving and adapting it for a new audience. It's clear to see their experience from Texas and the more elaborate designs for Georgia. The park brought a piece of Disney magic to the local region, thrilling visitors with adventures steeped in Georgia history. It became their park, like so many regional parks yet to appear across the country. And Angus wasn't finished. His company was to attempt striking gold for the third time, just west of the mighty Mississippi River. The third site was located near Eureka, Missouri, about 30 miles southwest of St. Louis. 502 acres were optioned at a cost of $1,500,000 for development just off Allenton Road, which runs north from nearby I-44. Over a dozen other locations had been rejected, mostly due to lack of room and the desired pastoral setting. Well, they found it here for sure, with the unincorporated town of Allenton just south of the property with its 500 residents, Eureka just east with around 2,400 folks, and equally tiny Pacific to the west. It was small town quiet at its best, and local reaction to the proposed entertainment center was typically mixed. Naysayers claimed the usual, worried about water, sewage, traffic, noise, and an irreparable hit to their low-key way of life. Sensing the inevitable, though, home builder Kenneth Edwards pretty much summed it up at a local proposal hearing It's not hard, after seeing all these big guns arrayed here tonight, to see how the Texans held the Alamo against the Mexicans for thirteen days. Most, though, including area businesses, were highly enthusiastic, thinking it was high time something happened in their sleepy corner of the world. Even more giddy were the officials from the three local municipalities which soon initiated competing annexation plans and counter-lawsuit threats for the park property. Helpless to intervene, Six Flags wanted no part of it. But it was St. Louis County itself that pointed out the obvious. None of these places had the resources to provide adequate government services for such a large facility. And so the $22 million project commenced on what was then called Six Flags Over Mid-America. This was a turbulent time for Penn Central, Six Flags' parent company and an ongoing struggle with financing, corporate debt, and changeover in management was the backdrop for getting this project to the finish line. The park division, however, had been going strong in Texas and Atlanta, so progress rolled forward to complete the park by mid-1971. There were challenges, of course. As project director John Everett Smith knocked the mud off his boots climbing out of the Jeep, he kept looking around, wondering how they were faring after one of the rainiest seasons in recent memory. Entering his rather plush office in what might have passed for a small barn, he sank into his chair to examine the plotting maps on the walls. One was a color-coded map of the park, indicating each section and progress updates. The other tracked construction costs. Smith was no stranger to this sort of thing, being one of the very few in the country who could say they'd built a park before. After supervising construction of the Texas Pavilion at the World's Fair for Angus, he moved to Georgia and got the company's second park up and running. I don't know the opening day, but it'll be at 10 o'clock in the morning, and at 9.59, we'll be cleaning out the back door. Recalling similar pressure getting Six Flags open in Atlanta, they were coming in the front door as we were hosing out the back. Early construction ground to a temporary halt when a local farmer showed up with a small problem. He still had Angus cattle and unharvested wheat on a portion of the park's property, something completely overlooked in all the complicated business dealings. But he was optimistic about the whole thing. Those people mean to do right, and the giant earth movers cranked back up soon after. Smith recalled several problems that you just have to expect during such large-scale construction, especially for something as atypical as an amusement park. The railroad tracks had to be rerouted five times as they figured where to put everything. The park sky ride, imported from Switzerland, had to be ordered early in the process if it were going to be completed on time. The manufacturer needed exact land details for engineering the large support columns, and so Smith just drew a line and fit other stuff around it. Then, what do you do when you finish a building and it looks a little taller than what you had in mind? No problem. Just lift it with a crane, dig a deeper hole, and drop it back in. Opening June 5, 1971, it's clearly evident that the park's layout was a departure from the earlier dual designs. Randall's company had been developing plans for Astroworld in Houston, and apparently Six Flags thought this was too close for comfort to their Dallas park. Duell argued that the locations were far enough away in terms of their respective demographics, but it didn't work. Six Flags apparently launched their newest project without them, although they'd be back at some point to help out. When that might have occurred, though, is difficult to determine. The park seemed to have a bit of the dual touch with thematic elements, architecture, and attractions, but these could have been adapted by local designers. The layout was radically different, with little hint of the dual loop that had proven so effective. By contrast, all of Randall's parks, before and after Mid-America, exhibited a very similar implementation. The pathway design here could be characterized more as a hub-and-spoke design pioneered at Disneyland. Walt's thinking was that there should be a central location that served as a meeting place and a jump-off point to each of the different lands. At Disneyland, it's the plaza in front of the castle. At Mid-America, once you enter the front gate, the building complex in front of you became the hub. The front mall consisted of shops and such, but walking around toward the back, you'd find the main entertainment theater, the palace, facing toward the rear of the park. The spacious courtyard here made a perfect meeting location. All around the central complex were access paths that branched out to each area of the park. Pathways within and connecting each of the lands were numerous and meandering, often requiring a visitor to get their bearings when seeking the next destination. But the palace, majestically facing out toward the park, provided a homing beacon that didn't take too long to locate. Interestingly, the visual effect of this hub and spoke layout when looking at a park map or an aerial photograph is that of an arch, maybe inspired by the great St. Louis arch. The railroad, instead of passing along the front of the park, takes a horseshoe shaped turn inward and around the central hub layout, crystallizing the visual of an arch. Other entrance architectural details coincide with this idea, such as the guest services buildings on either side of the ticket gates and the turnstile gateway structure. Arched, neoclassical peristyle columns adorn these structures, strongly suggesting a link to the famous landmark. the Just hang on and give him the rain. Ride, ride the, the first flag represented was Missouri encompassing the central hub area. The front mall, directly in front as you pass through the turnstiles, was straight out of the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair, officially dubbed the Louisiana Purchase Exposition. Architectural design recalls such regional touches as the well-known Lafayette Square terraced townhomes and historic neighborhood of Soulard In back of this, the Grand Palace Theater, featuring the stars and stripes salute, faced across the courtyard toward the St. Louis train station, which provided transportation service around the park to a stop in Illinois. Six pathways led across or under the railroad tracks into the rest of the park, but to the lower left sat the entrance to the Moon Antique Car Ride. Six pathways led across or under the railroad tracks into the rest of the park, but to the lower left sat the entrance to the Moon Antique Car Ride named after the Moon Motor Car Company that was based in St. Louis from 1905 to 1930. On the other side of the hub, off to the lower right corner of the park, the modern USA section featured the ubiquitous sports car ride, creatively named Super Sports, a down-to-earth American fare Good and Plenty restaurant, ultra-red glass-walled Mod Mod Whirl Shop with posters and black light, and of course the Chevy show that had made an appearance in the other parks. The Croft Brothers had been revitalizing entertainment for the Six Flags chain, and so the Croft Theater sat nestled in the sports car figure eight track. France was next as we continued counterclockwise around the park. There are deep French roots in Missouri, the most obvious being the founding of St. Louis in 1764. A fur trader from France named the city after a revered king. The main attraction filling the upper right corner of the park was the River King Mine Train. This was another Arrow tubular steel family roller coaster that had become so popular in the other parks. But the unique twist here was that it featured two coasters running non-identical layouts. To tie in the old mining theme, as was in the previous Six Flags parks, rustic frontier structures set the scene. Marquette's market honored Jacques Marquette, who sailed the Mississippi in 1673, and recorded the first use of the name Missouri on his map of the journey. A smooth transition into 1880s Illinois continued the log and clapboard look with Trapper's trading and Honest Abe's hats. At the very far tip of the park sat the Dolphin Show, which presumably had little to do with Illinois or history, but served to draw a guest into that corner of the park. Allenton Railroad Station was named after the tiny hamlet across the highway from the park that popped up during the Civil War. A most curious inclusion here was Jesse James' hideout, appearing as a rock formation of sorts on the map. This comes from Merrimack Caverns, known as a hideout for James, but actually located in Missouri. And the notorious outlaw was a Missourian. But apparently either they want a new part of him, even in 1971, or more likely, it fit the surroundings better in the land of Lincoln. French and Spanish interests dominated early America, but England attempted to stake their claim as well. And so there was a barely noticeable section of the park under the English flag. It was essentially the same as the frontier surroundings above it in Illinois and to the right in France, but it served the purpose in recognizing England's participation in American history. Moving toward the left side of the park past the now obligatory pet a pet petting zoo were two major attractions that paid tribute to the mighty Mississippi and early American literature. Adventures on the Mississippi was the latest incarnation of the Jungle Cruise knockoffs, featuring a riverboat ride past animatronic wildlife, charging alligators, furious Native Americans, waterfalls, caverns, cannon fire from an enemy fort, and the arm of a poor soul drowning in a whirlpool of raging waters. Across the pathway was the park's dark ride, Injun Joe's Cave. Like Tales of the Okefenokee in Georgia, This was a boat flume ride that cruised the bayou and introduced visitors to awkwardly crude figures such as Tom Sawyer and Becky. Spain was last, located in the lower left corner of the park. Along with typical mission-style architectural touches to the shops, restrooms, and Casa Meramec Seafood Restaurant, the main attraction was a log flume ride from Arrow. Hoo-hoo Log Flume got its unusual name from the lumber industry, where hoo-hoo became a popular term for lumberman. No connection to Spain can be found in the world of logging, however. Perhaps the intention was to continue honoring trades that used rivers for transportation. Life being ever practical, it could also simply have been a matter of finding enough acreage left in the park for it to fit. A celebration of history and life in the Middle America region of the country, the park made its distinctive mark the same as the parks in Texas and Georgia had. However, Six Flags over Mid-America would be the last park the company designed and built from the ground up. From then on, the company would buy existing parks and rebrand them with the Six Flags name, and so fundamental design similarities among them end after 1971. As we shall see, however, although you cannot rebuild a park's fundamental layout and infrastructure, Retheming and rebranding by the company would eventually remove many distinctions from these early parks, bringing a franchise-type commonality to them all. But, for the time being, residents in the greater St. Louis area had their own taste of Disneyland magic. There's a clear progression in design development from Texas to Mid-America, each successive park becoming more refined in its layout and functionality. They learned as they went, figuring how to provide necessary components, such as attractions, shows, food, shops, and restrooms in ways that maximized visitors' time and enjoyment. The entrance plaza and hub at Mid-America was far more extensive with support services, shops, and so on than at Texas. The dual loop was clearly more defined in georgia though mid-america was a completely different thing probably due to the change in designers along the way large attractions such as the mine train and river ride were pushed farther back in georgia than in texas reclaiming more precious central real estate for other uses they planned for future expansion anticipating the park's growth over time and so chunks of land were reserved in the far edges and corners in which to build larger attractions and additional themed lands. There's also a lot of compromise along the way, usually due to budget constraints. Comparisons between concept art and final build are always interesting to study to see what got chopped. At the Georgia Park, for example, the queue for Tales of Finoki looks to have included an Uncle Remus cabin and plantation in front of the show building. England was quite impressive with an array of Tudor structures that never materialized. Disney fans have drooled over such never-realized plans for decades. Although theming choices might not have been their first priority, careful research for regional historical stories and influences is evident. Many attraction names reference local towns, historical figures, trades, rivers, companies, and so on. Architecture was often fairly generic, such as the typical rustic wooden shacks of the Old West and mission style from Spanish colonists. But then, there are the entrance columns at Georgia, modeled after an actual southern estate, or the more subtle details at Mid-America that perhaps draw from the famous gateway. Graphic design of the 1960s prevailed all too often, with rather bland signage for attractions that are reminiscent of the generic family restaurant downtown. The local references, however, along with creative design touches brought a sense of regional identity to the park. This made it personal. And not merely something from a universally famous movie or fairy tale. But it wasn't just the logistics of putting together a park that functioned well and looked nice. Learning from the earlier mistakes of Magic Mountain, Pleasure Island, and Freedomland, Duel's team, working with park management, figured how to scale a Disneyland concept down to a local level. For Disneyland, Walt had the advantage of television. Where he could advertise and tease his park directly into the homes of millions of viewers each week. Disneyland was a national attraction. Six Flags wasn't intended to compete with that. Instead of attempting to build completely immersive environments and recreating film stories for visitors to step into, the designers settled for a sense of place and time that was enough to make a guest know that they were somewhere special and fun. Being former film art directors, and not merely run-of-the-mill architects, they knew a thing or two about how to creatively dress a set within budget. And so, for about $10 million, they got the ball rolling in the right direction. It's difficult for us to relate at this point in time, but water splashes from imaginary cannonballs, boats on rails, and simplistic animated figures were exciting and new for the time, there being few people who had experienced Disneyland. So, early thematic elements were relatively crude, low-budget, and yet utterly thrilling for park visitors. The core concepts that made Disneyland successful—social interaction, fun, education, history, nostalgia, and leaving the real world for just a bit—were all there. After the early failed attempts to copy Disneyland's magic around the country, Angus Wynne's vision— and Randall Duell's growing understanding of park design had found the right recipe for making it work for the regional market and in so doing, ushered in the golden era of the modern American regional theme park. The old-time music hall recalls the days of the Not long after opening the Arlington Park, Angus Wynn tried exporting the same brand of Texas-sized magic to the 1964 New York World's Fair. By personal request of the governor, John Connolly, and with the promise to reimburse him once the state legislature reconvened the following year, Wynn spent $9 million building attractions and running the operation. The massive Texas Pavilion complex was positioned in an area away from the main fair, and it suffered from low attendance. While Disney had tried to convince Robert Moses, the organizer of the fair, that this wasn't going to work and to build a monorail to entice people to make the effort to go over there. It was a money pit from the very beginning and never got better. When it was all over, Wynn got the next bit of bad news. Texas refused to make good on the governor's promise to pay up. He was wiped out losing the great southwest corporation and the six flags parks as a result of bankruptcy proceedings at least he still had a management role in the company for now although tumultuous times were brewing for the new owner while all of this had been going on tommy vandergriff hadn't let off the gas still looking for ways to boost his local economy while nailing down a major league baseball franchise it occurred to him that since six flags was doing so well why not a second park his first thought was a western theme park, so he contacted a few famous movie stars to gauge interest. Finding none, he reached out to Walter Knott in California about bringing his brand of boysenberry and cowboy goodness to Texas. Mr. Knott begged off, claiming he was too old at that point, but he suggested Vandergrift take a look at George Malay's World, which the mayor did. That was the ticket. And after George ignored his phone calls, he decided that Texas could certainly do a sea life park on their own. He found a willing partner much closer to home. Angus Wynn was enthusiastic about the idea, and suggested it be built on land adjacent to Six Flags. They could even have a riverboat ride connecting the two properties, with a two-park single-ticket admission, which was revolutionary for the time. Although none of these ideas transpired, the project accelerated forward. Six Flags entered an agreement to design, build, and operate seven seas, while the city of Arlington financed the whole thing. The concept was bulletproof, and so they started designing a park with beautiful landscaping, various animal shows, an Arctic-themed dark ride, and lots of waterfalls, bridges, and so on. Construction started in late 1970. Animals were purchased, and then Six Flags' parent company, Penn Central, imploded. One of the casualties was Angus, who was sent packing for good. The company pulled out of the deal, and so the city was left with an incomplete park, a bunch of creatures that required expensive care and upkeep, and no current income until they could get things opened. They trudged ahead on their own, convinced by the earlier financial productions that it would be a bonanza for them. It would not be. Attendance declined year over year, and the park lost money each season. For the third season, 1974, they were looking for help. Six Flags signed on to operate the park that year, but that didn't go so well. Then George Malay finally showed up, interested in doing something in the area. He struck a deal, a pretty good one, and really made a go of it for 1975. But it was clear nothing was going to turn it around at that point. His attention turned to getting property for a new idea he was chewing on, a gated water activity park, called wet and wild the city wouldn't play ball so he found a site elsewhere and it worked out quite well for him seven seas floundered and drowned completely a financial boondoggle on the city's books so what happened management was inexperienced in running a park exotic animals are extremely expensive and off-season costs were two hundred and fifty thousand dollars with no offsetting income the financial outlook was overly optimistic and disregarded operational issues unique to the project that nobody considered, such as having no local source of salt water. There are small bits of the place still there, with the Arlington Sheraton Hotel as the current occupant. Although most people have never heard of the park, it's always sad to see the rusting bones of yet another special place that's no longer making memories. america's disneylands is produced by rivershore creative find out more about regional park history at americasdisneylands.com and find great books at rivershorepress.com for the complete history of america's regional theme parks grab a copy of imaginary and american dreamscape available everywhere thanks for listening